there is a decided contrast between the way the world considers the end of all things and the way believers think about the end of days. Uh, We've been singing this morning about that, the uh, coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've been singing encouraging songs to each other and uplifting uh, songs that build us up and encourage us because we're excited about the coming of the Lord, are we not? Yeah, we are. Yeah. We are really excited about Jesus Christ's return, his appearing, his glorious appearing. In fact, in the scriptures, it talks about the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are looking for that blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord. And that is what uh, we, we gather together on a weekly basis and we may be getting beat up out there in the world and things are rough for us, but we come in here and we realize, you know what, come, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come for us and, and he's going to rescue us from all of this. And, and we're looking so forward to his glorious appearing. But the, the world, the culture around us is not looking uh, for that appearing the same way we are. When they think of the end of the world, of course, they're tied up in all kinds of destructive things and um, cataclysmic things and well, they should be. Uh, you've heard of all, like, I'm sure, the hoopla, the, uh, the, the upcoming Mayan calendar predictions whereby the sun will find its way in alignment with the earth and the center of the Milky Way. And you know what? Apparently that's when the end is going to come. And the date is December 20th, 2012. And that's what the world is looking for. At least they are being, it's being talked about out there. And um, the, the coming of the Lord, of course, was a really exciting and glorious anticipation that the uh, Thessalonian church had. They were all excited about it. They were looking forward to it. And so much, it occupied so much of their thinking and their questions, obviously, because the Apostle Paul addresses so much of it in his letters to the Thessalonians. Now, this church was a a really young church, uh, fairly new. Paul had only spent about three weeks with them, but obviously there had been a great harvest of, of young believers, and they had been reaching out into the community And there was great enthusiasm and excitement about the coming of the Lord. Uh, My first sermon that I ever preached was in 1968 in grade 8. I I preached about the beginning of the world and and how that all happened. My second sermon was in 1969 to my grade 9 class. And it was how the world would come to a a conclusion. Uh, I thought those were the only two sermons that I would ever preach in my life. So I better handle the beginning and I better handle the end. Take care of all of that. Uh, God seemed to have other plans. But we find in the scriptures that the Thessalonians are actually asking the question that we answered last week. What's going to happen to our beloved ones who have fallen asleep in Jesus? How are they going to relate to the coming of the Lord? When it's glorious appearing, a blessed hope, are they going to be left out? What's going to happen? And we found out last week, far from that. In fact, uh, the teachings of Scripture say, no, they will have a prominent position. It says in the Scripture that the dead in Christ will rise first when Christ comes. And then we who are alive will be be, uh, raised together and we all meet together in the air with the Lord and be together with Him. But obviously, they asked Him more questions than just that. And He seems to be asking, answering another question in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. uh, When is He coming or when will all this occur? I want to share with you this morning... Two big hope builders that come out of the text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the first 11 verses. And uh, by the way, uh, again, I want to make sure that we understand the, the purpose of the text. Because it's not hard for us to discover in the very words of the text themselves. At the end of chapter 4, it says, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. 
And at the end of this section, it says the very same thing. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Well, I trust that that it can be said of us at Calvary Baptist Church that that's the kind of people we are. We gather together to encourage one another about the coming of the Lord and that we never miss opportunities to, to speak blessing into each other's lives and to build each other up because... There's a whole lot of people outside of, in life that are trying to tear us down and mess us up. But, but the, the, the expectations that Christ has for us is that we'll be a people who encourage each other, particularly with the, coming, the teachings of the coming of the Lord is coming to get us. And it may be soon. It may be today when Christ comes to get us. So I want to talk about two big hope builders from this text. And uh, it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, if your Bibles are open, and we'll look at the first 11 verses. Our Father and our God, uh, before we uh, start to um, allow you to work on our hearts with respect to your word, it's important for us to pause and, and acknowledge that this is your word. And um, you have an intention for each of us purpose for each individual who you have by your divine providence and sovereignty uh, seen fit to bring to church this morning or those who might be listening by way of the uh, of the web and so our father i pray that because you have a divine appointment for us today with your word uh, i pray lord that um, you would eliminate the distractions that might uh, cause our minds to wander and that we might laser our thoughts on your word, that the Spirit of God might guide us into the truth, and that our lives might be filled with application as uh, the Spirit of God gives us understanding. So, Father, in in every sense of the uh, phrase that Jesus used so often, uh, let the person in here who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying uh, to the, uh, the people of God. And I pray, Father, that the culmination of our time together will serve the purposes for which you've given us this, to encourage each other and to build each other up, just as you expect us to be doing, and just as I trust, Lord, you are able to say of us that we are doing. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Now, brothers, about times and dates, chronos kai kairos, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, I hope you pay attention to the various word pictures and images that, are, that, are popped, that pop up out of this text. It gives us a, a good understanding if we pay attention to uh, the pictures that that Christ has given us here through his word. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others. Who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who, are, those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, note that, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And this is the word of the Lord. I would submit to you that the subject of this section is the day of the Lord. It's found right in verse 2. That's what he's talking about. He talks about that throughout the rest of this section. The day of the Lord. Now, we have been living in what's called the last days for the last 2,000, roughly 2,000 years. The reason I know that is Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 verse 17 says in these last days. So we are living in the last days. We've been living in the last days uh, for a long, long time. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a specific day called the day of the Lord. Now, now it's not a day in the sense of a 24-hour day, that, the day that we think of like today, Sunday. It's more an event or an epic. You find uh, teachings on the day of the Lord scattered throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the day of the Lord is uh, an event. The stress, by the way, is on the characterization of this particular time called the day of the Lord. It will be obvious, and it will be obvious in the fact that the ownership will be the day of the Lord. It will, uh, it will be a time where um, the complete domination of God will be obvious to all. That's why it's called the day of the Lord, the Lord's day. Now, this is called the Lord's day when we gather together, and it's a, a, a day that, that belongs to the Lord, and, and, and we're looking forward to that time when, when the glorious appearing of Christ in anticipation we gather together to worship until, until that time. But there's coming this, what's called the day of the Lord, and that's the subject that we find ourselves in, where by the invisible God uh, becomes cataclysmically visible. There's no question, there will be no question about who's running the show, who is running the universe on that day. There's all kinds of skeptics and scoffers and critics and so-called intelligentsia who are trying to tell us about how things work and, and how, uh, how everything is controlled and how the universe came to be and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm going to tell you that there's coming a day when there will be no question about who owns the universe. It will be a time of complete divine domination on the earth. The invisible God will become visible. So there are two big hope builders that I want you to get out of this text, as I said. And the first one is this. The day of the Lord will come. That's what this text says. The day of the Lord will come. And by the way, and they will not escape. The contrast in this text is between brothers or those who are in Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, versus those who are not. And they're referred to as they or them or, 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 or whatever. You'll see throughout the text. And at the very end of verse 3 it says, and they will not escape. The day of the Lord is coming and they will not escape. Now the question I think that Paul was answering here on the basis of uh, the Thessalonian letter that they obviously wrote to him or the message they got back to him through Timothy. We're not exactly sure how he got his communication for this to answer this question. But the question appears, appears to be, when will this happen? When will the day of the Lord come? And uh, I, have, I have the answer for you. You cannot know. 
That's pretty disappointing, isn't it? You you got up out of bed this morning, came all the way to church, and I'm telling you that you can't know. Well, I'm telling you that because that's what Paul is saying. He's saying about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Now, why did he say that? Well, the exact same phrase, the chronos kai kairos, was used by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, at his ascension. He said, now, about dates and times, same thing. You cannot know. It's not for you to know. So I think the Apostle Paul is writing them back and saying, if Jesus already told us that it's not for us to know, then I don't need to write you about it. Because it's not for us to know. Now this, this times and dates that he's talking about here, in the original, the, the idea of chronos is where we get our word chronological, and that refers to the increments of time, the measurement of time, like the seconds or minutes or days or years, and that's how we measure time. The kairos, on the other hand, is the the type of time or the the description of the time, the, the kind of time or the look of the season of time. We can give an example of that. Anybody who was watching the hockey game last night, particularly Chicago Blackhawk fans, The last five minutes was chronos time, all right? It's going to be marked off in the last five minutes of the game. It's going to be incremental. It's going to be five actual minutes of time. But when you're up by one goal and there's five minutes to go in the game, five minutes seems like kairos, an eternity. That's the type of time it is. And Jesus is saying... You know, whether you want to try and measure it by minutes and days and seconds or by the Mayan calendar or whatever you want to do or by the look of the landscape, I'm just simply telling you, you can't know. You're not going to know. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, because it's going to come like a thief in the night. So uh, Jesus is really saying, like, forget about the 2012, 2012 thing. And I have to agree with um, James Montgomery Boyce, who is now with the Lord, uh, that uh, pastor who's written so much on the things of God, pastored a, a major church in Philadelphia for years, Presbyterian Church. And he, he writes to the effect that to Christians, we shouldn't get caught up in looking for anything else but the glorious appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that's, what our, that's what our hearts, uh, what our eyes, what our thinking Everything, nothing should distract us from simply longing for the glorious appearance, the the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord. And that's why Jesus, I think, said, you're not going to know the times of dates. I don't want you to focus on that. I don't want you to, to set your affections and your attention there. I just want you to have no other distractions than that you are waiting for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And Paul tries to tell them the same thing in a, a different way, really. Really, Paul is saying to them, neither calendar nor current affairs watching is meaningful because the beginning of the end will be a surprise. It'll catch the world by total surprise. In fact, uh, in verse 3, the word that you'll find in there suddenly is really emphatically placed in the original It basically reads, suddenly, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them as labor pain. So that suddenly is just an emphatic word. 
catch the world by total surprise. The social, social climate that seems to be leading up to the coming of the day of the Lord is not going to be a time, kairos or chronos, of agitation or disaster or destruction. It's not going to be a time of judgment. The talk of the town will be peace and safety. Now, now that's relative, because we know that the teachings of Scripture have told us that there'll always be wars and rumors of wars. There'll always be, uh, there'll be wickedness and evil on this world until Jesus sets everything right. But it's quite a different picture you get here about the beginning of the end than some would suggest. Paul says, people will be saying, Peace and safety. The day will arrive upon the nighttime of unexpectancy. It says it'll come like a thief in the night. The idea is that they're unprepared for it. Because if you were prepared for a thief, you would make certain things happen at your house. You would make sure your doors are locked. You would make sure you have motion lights outside. You have alarms that would be set, right? Your behavior takes on a certain shape when you think that there might be a thief coming. Did did all of you lock your door last night? Probably you did because you thought, you know what, a thief might come. I know I did. I went down, locked the door and loaded up the BB gun, made sure that Not really, no. I did lock the door, though. And um, it says there that uh, this day of the Lord, this epic event where there will be no doubt on who is the owner of the universe, when that comes, it will be suddenly like labor pains on a pregnant woman. Now, I'm having trouble illustrating this on a first-person basis, but... I've seen some of this happen, and when you are a woman is pregnant, we call her expecting, don't we? Oh, I see you're expecting. That's what we use. We use the term because you're you're you think that a baby's coming, right? You have this idea, and and all kinds of things happen. You get your bags packed, get the GPS set for the hospital, make sure that the nursery is all painted. Remember painting our nursery yellow. I remember saying, thinking to Lynn, what, what, are we having Big Bird or something? What, what is this yellow thing about? And then, and then we had Graydon. I'm not sure if there's a connection there or not. <laughs> the day of the Lord, this season, this epic, it says, by the way, inaugurates destruction. That's what it says in the text. Destruction is what comes suddenly on them, not on us Not on you, not on the brothers and sisters, but on them. Destruction comes suddenly. The fantasy security that people have been enjoying, calling it peace and safety, will come to a sudden and abrupt change. That's what the text says. And by the word this by the way, this word destruction, of course, is used over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The same word is used, verse one verse 9, which says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. This kind of destruction that we're talking about here is, is the loss of all that gives worth to life. It is the 
onset of the time of judgment upon wickedness and evil, whereby those who are not part of the family of God will be shut out from God forever. That's that's why I believe and, and trust that Calvary Baptist Church has an evangelistic zeal. Why we have to have an evangelistic zeal today. Because suddenly everything's going to change. Suddenly it's going to be too late. And it says they, not us, will not escape. That's what it says. They will not escape. Will not escape what? The judgment of God. The scoffers, the skeptics, the cruel. We... um, we don't want to talk about judgment. We, we, we try to hide that as if it's sort of the, the, the bad laundry of Christianity. But in our heart of hearts, our hearts go out and cry out for justice. When we see the, the pain and the suffering that is endured by people because of evil and wickedness. When we see the cruelty that is foisted upon little children who are abused by those who have turned their backs on God and and are serving the evil desires of their lives. Our our hearts go out to those people whose lives and bodies are ravished by the, the effects of the breakdown in our lives because of sinfulness physically taking its toll on all of us and and our lives cry out for justice for the time where God sets everything at uh, in right form, it appears to me that from the teachings of the scripture, it'll be a prolonged day. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 through 11, it, there is a description of the day of the Lord. See, the prophet writes, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Our God is a righteous God. He is indignant about the choices of mankind to sin against him in a high-handed manner every day of their lives, damaging people's lives. And God speaks forth and says, there's coming a day when I'm going to say, enough! And it will be sudden. God's dominion, his victory before final destruction will be meted out upon the uh, inhabitants of the earth. And so the wicked will finally be destroyed. But it will be a wake-up call for Israel. In Isaiah 14, the first three verses, it says here in contrast to the, uh, or in, in conjunction with the teachings of the day of the Lord, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. A reference to Israel. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. And aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. 
The house of Israel possess the nations as men servants and maid servants in the Lord's hand. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage. It's based on the irrevocable nature of, of his faithfulness and promises to Israel itself. The Apostle Paul writes of the same thing in Romans chapter 11. And writing to the church in Rome, he writes this in verse 11 of Romans. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? In reference to ethnic Israel. Not at all, he says. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. The teaching here is is obvious to make that, that the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ... And, and the coming of the Lord for the bride of Christ makes the, 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 people, uh, the, the people of Israel, the, 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 the ethnic Israel, to be jealous for the things of God. And the wanderers will have a wake-up call. And in writes further in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs of Adam, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts, listen this to this, note this, and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. In other words, just as we have received this salvation because of the disobedience of Israel, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God brings salvation to Jew and Gentile to bring glory to himself. The day of the Lord. When wickedness is put aside in a wake-up call to ethnic Israel. But the writer, the Apostle Paul, uses this emphatic contrast in verse 4. But you, brothers, are not in darkness. And this is the second a big hope builder. You are not in darkness, in knowledge or in nature. He's speaking to Calvary Baptist Church. Those of you who have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not in darkness. Neither by nature nor by knowledge. You know of these things. You know that the Lord is coming. In fact, we, we spent a good part of the time this morning telling each other all over again, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know this is, to be, this is so. So that it shouldn't surprise you like a thief. Now, by the way... Uh, A thief would surprise you only if you weren't prepared for a thief. But if you are living with preparation, then you're not surprised. And not that you have to need to see the thief coming. You won't. Nobody will. But it will come like a thief. The night people won't be ready. 
That's what the reality is here. That, 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 that although it may be unannounced, to the people who are not in darkness, it is not unexpected. And here's the big builder. Because you, he says, verse 5, are all sons of the light and sons of the day. You're not night people. You're day people. You're, you're part of the family of this day. This, this day of the Lord, this is the fa- your family of that day. That means you're prepared. It's, it's not going to catch you by surprise. You're not going to be unprepared. It'll still be sudden. But you're in a different situation from them. That's the good news. That's the encouraging news. He says, therefore, in verse 6, let us not be like others. What's the description of those who are are not prepared? It says they're asleep. Now, have you ever tried to teach somebody who was asleep something? You ever tried to communicate language to somebody who was asleep? I'm trying to do that this morning. (laughs) Wake up! You're trying to teach people something when they're asleep. I mean, you, you wake your kid up out of a, a slumber, a stupor, and you give them some instructions. You know this thing is going nowhere. Right? They're like, what? what where am I? Who is this? What is... He's giving the description here that people who are not ready for the coming of the Lord are asleep. They are in a spiritual stupor. Now, you know that. You know what that looks like. You've been out there witnessing to people. They just look at you, just stare at you like you're out of your mind. There's no connection. They, they don't seem to be aware. They, there's no sensitivity to the things you're talking about. Jesus is coming. What in the world are you talking about? They're not alert at all. They're, not, they're just in a slumber. And, and he says here that, that not only in a spiritual slumber, they're just dopey. They're dead to it. They're oblivious to it. They're night people. And he goes on to say they buy into the intoxicants of the culture trying to fill the emptiness in their lives every Friday night, and they wake up Saturday morning feeling more empty than they did the night before. They're spiritually out of it. But the, the passion of the Apostle Paul here to us, as followers, is you're, that's not you, is it? That's not a description of you. He's not describing you, is he? He says, but, but you're not like that. You're not in darkness. To prove that is so you live differently. You live like day people, don't you? The opposite here, I, I circle in my Bible, the, the, there's a huge difference between being asleep and being alert. You're alert. The opposite of being spiritually asleep is being spiritually alert, being awake, being all there, being wide-eyed. You're singing about the coming of the Lord and we look at each other in a knowing way. We know what we're talking about. We're looking for the glorious appearing of Christ. You know why we're alert? I circled another word in this text in my, in my scriptures. Because we belong. We belong to the day. We belong to Christ. We belong. It, it makes a difference when you're, you're, you're children of the day. We are characterized by light. Children of the day that God is going to dominate for himself and for us. It makes a difference. And he describes what we're like. Says twice we're self-controlled. What does that look like, being self-controlled? It means we're, being, we're controlled by the desires of the Spirit. You want to understand what that is? You look at Galatians 5.22 and following. It talks there about what it means to have those kind of desires. It means that, that rather than being intoxicated by all the things that, that grab the culture's attention, that, that steer the life choices of the culture, 
We are filled with the Spirit. We, we long for the desires of the Spirit and what He brings to us. We, we live a balanced life. We are, we are not out of balance or out of sync. It's balanced living. We avoid excesses. We're not controlled by the values of the world. And then he goes on to say, you have a tribal look about yourselves. You have a costuming look about you. You have a particular breastplate and a particular helmet. You know, it, it, it gives you your look. It's not an external thing. It's internal, but it, it works its way out to external realities, right? You see the kids today, they tattoo the outside of their bodies. It, it's, it's to give them a tribal look. Hey, I'm part of this culture. It, it expresses somehow who I am or what I am, at least on the ex- out exterior. We have, a, we have a tribal look about ourselves as well. And he talks about it in the text. He says, you have a breastplate of, of faith and love. It, it, it marks who you are. That breastplate is a composite of faith and love. I, I suppose it gives it more strength when it's composite. If you play hockey now, you know they have these composite sticks. I don't really know what makes them so great. They're a combination of a variety of different things. You know, it's no, no longer just wooden hockey sticks. You got, you got your composite hockey stick. All I know is it costs a whole lot of money, so it must be really good. But you got this composite breastplate of faith Working with love. You trust in the Lord because you love him. And because he loves you, you trust in him. It works together. And what is it that the breastplate always takes care of? It protects what? It guards our, our hearts. It guards our lungs. And Paul is writing to them and saying, in, the, in light of the coming of the Lord, be prepared. Make sure that you're wearing the breastplate of faith and love because there's all kinds of things out in the street that are going to try and erode your trust toward God. There's all kinds of things. There's going to be whispers in your ear that are going to say, you know what? God doesn't really love you. He's, he's not coming back for you. He, he's been away so long. He's, he's forgotten all about what he said. He's not coming back. No, Paul says, you put that thing on and you guard your heart. You guard your heart. You trust in the Lord because you love him. And because he loves you, you trust in him. It works together. But we also guard our lungs by a breastplate. When I think of lungs, I think of breathing. And when I think of breathing, I think of praying. You breathe in, you breathe out. You breathe in the things of God, you breathe out your speech to God. Is a two-way communication, this prayer. And I, I think that, that Paul is saying here to them, you know, in light of the, the way things are around you and how, how soon the Lord could come, you need to be prepared. You need to be in constant communication with your Savior who loves you. And then he says, you know, um, you ought to put on the hope of the helmet of salvation. What are we protecting with a helmet? We're protecting our thinking and our imagination. You know, the evil one wants your imagination to run wild in opposite directions of true theology. Paul says, no, 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 guard it. Guard it with the truth so that your thinking will be focused on the coming of the Lord for you. That your imagination will be focused on him, regardless of how hard it gets, regardless of how much the persecution comes, and how hard the pain is, and how much opposition you face. Keep your head about you, and and the hope of your salvation. Because he's been reminding them that the end is coming. 
And there will be a time where God meets out upon wickedness his wrath. And he doesn't want the church to get the wrong idea about what's going to happen to them. See, when, um, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you gained salvation, and all that's involved in that, and there's a lot involved in it, you also moved in terms of category with God. You see, before we came to Christ, we were all, it says in both Romans and Ephesians, objects of his wrath. Because God is a righteous, holy God. He cannot embrace evil. He can't. And so when Christ forgave you and came into your life, at that instant, God pictured you as righteous in Christ. And Christ took upon himself the full wrath of God so that we no longer would be under the condemnation of God or have the wrath of God upon us. And the wrath of God, we've been propitiated, the Bible says, a theological term. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We've been propitiated. The wrath of God has been diverted away from us. And so Paul is reminding them, oh, by the way, you know you've read about the day of the Lord, the wrath of God coming upon the earth. He's saying, look, I don't want you to become rattled. I don't want you to lose your footing. I don't want you to lose your head. I want you to guard your heart because I want you to know that you have not been appointed to suffer wrath. That's what it says in the text. Is that good news? I like that. Not more suffering for the church. The day of the Lord is a day for lost people. I think it'll be one more loud proclamation of a dominant God who people should bow before for mercy and salvation. To go from rebellion to repentance. But there's no purpose in the day of the Lord. For those not appointed to wrath. It's really important, you know, because um, when you think about these things and you think about how difficult things can get in your life, it is really important for us to know that God is not mad at us. He's not. We have not been appointed to wrath. And so I think the exciting teaching that grows out of this text as we summarize and wind it up is that sometime before anybody suspects something cosmic is up and the beginning of wrath, the day of the Lord, you who are in Christ will be rescued. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake, alert spiritually or we have died in Christ asleep, fallen asleep, we will be together with him. Two big hope builders. The day of the Lord will come 
And those who have rejected God will not escape. But you are children of God's day, the Lord's day. And you will be saved. Because you do not have an appointment with wrath. Father, this morning as we conclude this time, I pray that your church will put its breastplate on the composite strength of faith and love. The hope of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation, that our thinking and our imagination might be clear. When everyone around us is losing their grip on things, I pray, Father, that we will have our eyes fixed on the coming of the Lord. And that, Father, we won't be selfish about this. Embracing this teaching and becoming complacent and satisfied that we are children of the day. Therefore, we'll just wait till the Lord returns. But that we will understand the precarious position of our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers who are outside of Christ. And that with evangelistic zeal, we will share the good news and we will live the good news of Jesus Christ who died that people can get saved And no longer be appointed to wrath, O our Father. I pray that even in this room, that there would be no one who would walk out and be in a position that if suddenly the day of the Lord began right today, they walked out, they would be lost. Separated from the God of love forever. This morning is the time to reach out to Christ. He's not far off. He invites all those to come to him. Come to him for forgiveness. Whoever does, he will never cast away. Instead, he will move into their lives and change them. Lord, that can happen right here this morning. Simple prayer of a faithful heart who desires Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you will cause your church to rise up with great thanksgiving, great anticipation, and great zeal for the work you've called us to do because the night is coming when day will be no more. But we have right now. In Jesus' name, amen. He tells us, so church, arise. Be encouraged. Speak building language into each other's lives for Christ is going to come to get his bride, the one he died for. He died for us that we might be with him. In the meantime, he says, put on that composite breastplate and guard your hearts and guard your lungs, guard your prayer and your your love for him, faith and love, and put on that helmet, the hope of salvation. You have been rescued from wrath to live with Christ forever. Encourage each other with these things and long for his appearing because it could come at any moment, in an instant, suddenly, when we don't think he will come for us. And I give thought to that. Have you ever just thought about, com- about the coming of our Lord, about being with him? It will change everything for all eternity to be with him, our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we long for. That's the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, it is to that great truth 
that we have given our attention this morning. And we long for the glorious appearing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, to see him. To touch him. To hear his voice. To be with him. Lord, may there be nothing else that gets in the way of that vision. Encourage us. That we might encourage each other. Build us. That we might speak building language into each other. Just as we are doing. In Jesus' name.